Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedda from the Comment and Analysis Desk. Why have chief executives' pay packages become swollen out of all proportion to average wages? This week, the FT has been running a series of news analysis and data on runaway pay, and that was the focus of Patrick Jenkins' big read. Now, Christopher Grimes, analysis editor, talks to Patrick and John Gapper about short-term and long-term thinking on remuneration and business strategy, and where the pressure is coming from to rein in excessive pay inflation. So we're here today in the London studio with John Gapper, chief business commentator of the FT, and Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor, to talk about the hot topic of executive pay. We all know that executive pay has gone up a lot in the last 20 years, but your big read this week, Patrick, served as a stark reminder of just exactly how high it has gone up, 330% between 1998 and 2015. But there's some people, big shareholders and other, and even some government figures who want to push back against this. Patrick, could you tell us what's going on this year? Yeah, absolutely. I think several factors have come together this year. If you look back over the past five to 10 years, there have been various points at which shareholders have protested about pay on a number of grounds, normally that high pay has come at odds with performance. And we had in 2012, the so-called shareholder spring, where quite a few big companies had rebellions on pay from their shareholders at investor meetings in the US, in the UK, in continental Europe. What's happened this year in the UK in particular is that there's been a kind of alignment between shareholders getting uneasy about pay at odds with performance, but also the government informed by a belief that the population at large feels this is pushing for change. Really, they're uncomfortable with the level of pay. A government green paper that came out in November stopped short of calling for regulation of pay as such, but urged there to be new ways of constraining it, really, asking for publication of pay ratios and maybe more binding votes on pay. So there's been an interesting combination, therefore, of influence over boardrooms, shareholders and government and the general public, that sentiment, and of course... The Brexit vote here was seen as being partly informed by this disillusionment among the general public that there's a cosmopolitan elite which are in part running Britain's business and the rest of the world, if you like. And that has distilled right now into this sense ahead of the AGMs that are due to be coming up over the next couple of months into a push by investors for companies to change the way they pay their CEOs. And what we focused on in this big read was really on the structure of pay 
and on this one element, the so-called long-term incentive plan, which is widely seen as being responsible for that pay inflation that you talked about right at the beginning. Because if you look at the charts, it's pretty clear that LTIPs have gone from being virtually non-existent back in the late 90s to now constituting the largest element of pay and they're seen as not having worked. Basically, these are supposedly long-term incentive plans that are bonuses which should reward long-term performance, but have been gamed in many cases and have been paid out in large amounts for actually pretty mediocre performance. John, it's easy to be, for me at least, to feel a little cynical about this because we've been hearing about inequalities since the financial crisis and we've heard about excessive executive pay, but it doesn't really feel like there's been a significant move backwards. Am I just being cynical or does it feel like this is just something that comes up every spring? I guess if you take a step back, being growing concern about the rise in executive pay spilling out of the US, where I guess these very high rewards for chief executives may be started coming across the Atlantic to the UK and other countries. And in a way, I think there's been this perverse effect that the more shareholders or consultants have tried to get their heads around making it fairer, more transparent and so forth, the more it's gone up. And there has been this upper quartile effect of if you get in a bunch of consultants and you say, well, look, you know, our chief executives pay is in the bottom two quartiles. All that happens is the chief executive says, well, actually, I want to be in the top quartile. So everybody wants to be at the top. And there's a ratchet effect. I think there's a second effect that we've seen, which is a lot of chief executives have compared themselves with the private equity, hedge fund, private capital world, in which those that do well can earn a very large amount of money. And there's no real pushback from the private equity shareholders on giving them a chunk of the business. And so I think it's been relatively easy for public company shareholders to say, well, look, you gave me this job. In effect, you've qualified me now to be headhunted into the private equity sector where I can earn much more money. So even though you might be disturbed about it, that's what I deserve. And I think there's just been a gradual increase and increase and increase. And then there's two sets of questions. One is the social question of the sense of disturbance the outsiders feel and politicians feel about this. And then there's the narrow question of the shareholders. Is this doing them any good? Is it doing them harm? Should they really care? And I think what maybe is a little bit different is we're starting to see shareholders care. And you brought this up, Patrick, that actually there may be some evidence that these pay packages are bad for business and shareholders are starting to realize that. How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the old maxim really among a lot of shareholders was you want to pay a CEO as much as the board thinks they should be paid or as much as they demand. The important thing is to get the best person for the job because whether someone's paid 10 million or 1 million is irrelevant to the bottom line of the company in itself. But if you get someone who's fantastic for 10 million and generates 10% growth or 20% growth in turnover and in profits, that's very, very much worthwhile, whereby a 1 million CEO who doesn't grow the business is obviously negative. That was the old way of thinking. And I think what's changed is that people are looking over the longer term. They're realizing that actually, if you incentivize people in the kind of way we talked about LTIPs and with other performance-related measures, 
they may start managing the business in a way that's actually counterproductive for the long term. So, for example, there's been quite a lot of academic study around investment levels and around the area of, for example, share buybacks, acquisitions. All of these common corporate strategies that are employed sometimes to boost, for example, earnings per share in an artificial way And earnings per share, of course, is the most common measure that is used as an underpin for LTIP payouts. So if you can reduce the number of shares in issue, you boost your earnings per share. If you make a bold acquisition that might be dangerous in the long term, you boost earnings per share in the short term. Shareholders are starting to think about all of these things and are worried that they could be counterproductive. And I think the related point, if that's the micro picture from shareholders, then another way in which government and policymakers should be interested in this is because it can have deleterious effect potentially on a macro basis through lower investment than might otherwise happen in a company and therefore productivity going down. Andrew Smithers, the economist, has written a lot about this. Mm. Yeah, I think that what Patrick says is absolutely right. And in a way, it comes down to your definition of long term. If you're a pension fund, your definition of long term should be 30 years. And that's arguably the sort of timescale that you're really talking about, about building a business, certainly a decade, 10, 20 years. The definition of long term, which sort of slipped in through these long term incentive plans, is a very private equity definition of three to five years. The reality is a lot of people know if you become chief executive of a company, the clock starts ticking and you are highly incentivized to do something big, quick and showy within three years. You might well end up doing an acquisition, buybacks, a lot of restructuring activity that boosts the share price and therefore your incentive in what is called the long term, but it really is just the short, medium term, knowing that you're probably going to be out the door after that, either voluntarily or not. And so one thing that I think shareholders should logically be concerned about is they've created an entire class of footloose executives, highly rewarded over a relatively short period to do something which is not actually in their interests. One thing that's quite interesting, I think shareholders are not starting to think about this off their own backs entirely. They are actually under pressure from their own backers, if you like, the pension funds that put the money into the asset management houses. In other words, the asset management houses aren't actually investors. No. They are intermediaries. But interesting, they are listening to the pension funds, to the sovereign wealth funds that are putting pressure on the ones who have the genuinely long-term mentality and are listening that this needs to change. And I think the model that seems to be coming very much in its infancy at the moment but may become a new norm is this idea of restricted stock, shareholdings that you may give to a chief executive that they then have to hold for at least seven years or until retirement. Goldman Sachs operates in this way and has operated in this way for many, many years. A legacy, I think, of its partnership status originally, but senior partners at Goldman have to hold their stock until retirement. HSBC, interestingly, tried to replicate that model a few years ago, introduced this restricted stock idea to be held until retirement to motivate senior people for the long term. They got a rebellion from shareholders and withdrew it within three years or so. I think that they were too early, essentially. Mm. But my sense is that shareholders now, there's much more support for that kind of idea. And if they were to introduce that now, it would get through. 
Well, there's some big asset managers who are agitating this year, right, for some change. Aberdeen, Fidelity, and some others are really hoping to take a stand and build on some success last year, right? WPP had a pretty exciting AGM last year, uh, if I'm not mistaken. WPP, it's been a standout for quite some time. Sir Martin Sorrell, the chief executive, is the best paid CEO around. He took home more than £70 million. It's quite an interesting case, actually. Not that many shareholders get overly excited about Sir Martin Sorrell because he's a bit of a special case. He's almost a bit like John's example of the kind of private company owner in the sense that he's been there for a very long time. He's built this business from virtually nothing. He's very different from the CEO who goes in for five to seven years into a company and makes hay with short-term targets, then leaves the business in perhaps a bit of disarray. And those are the companies where I think there's been much more of a rebellion, really, even though the numbers in some cases are smaller. As you say, there will always be protests at WPP over the quantum. But BP was a big target last year. There were other companies around the world that saw rebellions. And I think we are going to see more this year people in the US. The Oracle is every year. year. Speaking of the US, I think even though in the UK, there seems to be this clamor for something to change, it may be going in the opposite direction in the US. I mean, there's discussion of removing this idea of having to disclose the pay ratios. I mean, the US has always been a little bit of an outlier. Do we think with the animal spirits being unleashed and so forth, is this a lost cause there? I think there's been a lot more tolerance in the States for very high executive pay, particularly, for example, in the media sector, media and tech type companies. I mean, in the technology sector, a lot of the highest paid people were the founders and they've just got a lot of equity. In the media sector, they've sort of behaved like founders and had very large payouts. And the truth is they've sort of got away with it. And the involvement of shareholders is expressed in a very different way in the States. There isn't the same discussion. There's more of a sense of you can get on with it as long as there's no malfeasance involved and then the shareholders might sue the company. But there's a much greater sense in which, despite some popular disturbance about it, there's no real ratchet against it in the same way. And I think that the European structures of shareholding make that conversation between the shareholders and the executives more of a reality. Yeah, I think the culture here... It's a smaller place, the city of London. You tend to have more active managers who traditionally are more engaged. You tend to have more, even though it's reduced, the level of UK fund manager holdings in big UK companies is more concentrated. So even if it's slightly out of kilter with the relatively dispersed shareholdings that we have in big blue chips these days, the power of those investors is still pretty large. I was wondering about another big trend out there, which is the trend toward passive management versus active management. This is one of the big themes of investing. If more and more people are investing money through ETFs, how will this pressure on pay manifest itself in the future? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one because on the face of it, passive managers are not going to be as engaged in the shareholdings that they have. They don't have any choice in what they own. They have to own this stuff because the index says they have to own it. And therefore, their leverage over the companies that they invest in is that much less. On the other hand, you find some of the biggest passive managers would argue that because they have to own these shares, 
the only way in which they can add value is by engaging even more. So BlackRock, they've got quite a big governance department. I'm not in a position to judge the quality or otherwise of what they do, but they would argue that they play a very effective role despite being passive managers in a large part. Yeah, I mean, I think in the classic model of exit or voice, what do you do when the company goes wrong? Well, you can't exit in the same way if you're a passive manager, so voice is all you've got. I still think, however, that in a debate, and I'm sitting on one side of the table and I'm the chief executive and you're sitting on the other side of the table and you're the governance department of a large passive manager, I kind of know that you're not going to pull the trigger. Mm. And that must be a bargaining advantage on my side. Yeah, I suppose the one power that they do have is these passive managers, many of them are enormous, the Black Rocks, the vanguards of the world. If they speak out, that can have a damaging impact on the companies they invest in. I think there is a sense of relevance that they have, but as John says, they don't hold the trigger exactly. So to go back to something we talked about earlier, these long-term incentive plans actually promoting short-term thinking, you started your piece by talking about where this idea came from. Can you just tell us a little bit about what those plans were meant to do and maybe how they went wrong? Yeah, so the idea came around in the UK in the early 90s at Reuters where they introduced a long-term incentive plan for the then chief executive Peter Job. The previous fashion in British business, as in the US, had been share options. These had gradually faded in popularity for a number of reasons, but they either were seen to underpay chief executive when share prices fell, they became worthless, or overpay, becoming way too generous in boom times. Anyway, options aside, LTIPs were born really through that Reuters scheme. And within a few years, far more companies within the FTSE 100 had adopted them. And now every single company in the FTSE 100 operates an LTIP. They were designed, as I say, to be a fairer reflection of performance than an option, which was kind of predicated only on share price. And the Reuters scheme depended on relative performance to other companies in the FTSE. So it was a total shareholder return measure. And they had to come within the top 30 companies in the FTSE, measured by share price and dividend payouts, for the LTIPs to trigger. In that first year that they were introduced for 1983, when they paid out in full, because Reuters did indeed come in the top 30. And Peter Job ended up with a far, far greater overall package than he ever earned before. And I think it's fair to say that other chief executives looked at this example and rather liked what they saw. And I spoke to Peter Job about this, actually. And at that time, corporate governance standards allowed the chief executive to be very much involved in shaping remuneration structures. And he was intimately involved in devising this. The governance standards have changed so that now it's supposedly only the remuneration committee that judges these things. And the CEO is, is not involved even so, as John said, we've still got this huge ratcheting effect. And it's a fear, really, I think, among boards that they don't pay their CEOs top quartile packages, they will lose them. But I think, as we were saying earlier, investors are starting to harden their attitudes. Are there any particular cases coming up this spring that we should watch out for? Any fireworks expected? Yeah, absolutely. As I said, Oracle is a kind of perennial target in the US. I think Liberty Media as well, among the US companies seen as serial misbehaviors, are likely to be targeted. In the UK, as last year, WPP and BP will be closely scrutinized, I think, Sports Direct as well. We've already had a few 
instances where schemes have been proposed and altered as a result of private consultation with investors. One of the ones that caused unease among investors, particularly because of the bonus structure, was Imperials, formerly known as Imperial Tobacco. So I think people are talking about this season being possibly the most rebellious on record. Last year was a record for the number of protest votes. We'll see whether investors manage to persuade companies to alter schemes ahead of their annual meeting or whether it actually all comes to a head and blows up. Well, we'll see what happens. Thanks very much. To find Patrick's full report and see the charts he refers to, go to www.ft.com. Slash big read.